You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Or, of course, you can follow along on the screen up there. So Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that in this time you will open up your word to us and help us to draw near to you through this passage. God, work by your spirit in our hearts in this time, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let me grab a drink of water real quick. Gotta, gotta hydrate. Tamara always tells me I don't drink enough water. So, this passage that we're looking at comes in the midst of Holy Week. Last week, we celebrated Holy Week, and it culminated with a holiday. Can anyone tell me what the holiday was? Anyone? All right, there, there we go. Got it over there. Was it the students over there that said it? Nice. Good job. Yeah, Easter, right? It culminated in Easter, so we, said, so we celebrated Easter this past weekend. It's a huge holiday for us, and it should be. We celebrate the resurrection, that Jesus has defeated death and overcome sin, and that is awesome. But this passage comes a little earlier in the story. So we're going back in time a little bit to Thursday of that week. So a few days before the resurrection to what we call in our liturgical calendar Maundy Thursday. And that's the day that we celebrate, uh, the Maundy Thursday service, we celebrate the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And so that's a very famous story. You know there's the painting that is very popular of the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal during his earthly ministry with his disciples. And so this story occurs just a little bit later that same night, a few hours later. Jesus takes his disciples to the garden to pray, and they had been to this garden before. So they would go there, and Jesus would teach. They would pray together. It was a very hot spot for their spiritual activity. But this time was different. It was not an ordinary time of prayer, if that's an acceptable phrase to use. It was not normal Right? Jesus took his disciples to this garden for a special purpose, and we see that in what he does with them. So Jesus doesn't take his whole group with him. 
he goes into the garden, and then most of his disciples, who are already, these 11 are pretty close to him, or these 12 are pretty close to him, he tells them, stay over here. You guys just, just stay there. And he only brings his inner circle over to where he's going to pray. His, his top three. Jesus did kind of play favorites with his disciples. He had a top three. He had an inner circle. He had Peter, James, and John. Those were his closest friends on earth. He brought them to where he was going to pray. And then, all of a sudden, he just kind of opens up out of nowhere. Now, who here, by a show of hands, has ever had someone just unload on them emotionally, just kind of out of nowhere? A few of us? Okay. Now, who here has unloaded on someone out of nowhere emotionally? Yeah, maybe? Okay, well, we all kind of know that feeling, right? Where you, you walk into school or to the office, and you're like, hey, how's it going? And the person just, all of a sudden, the floodgates are open. That's all they needed, and it's days, weeks, months of baggage just sweeping your feet out from under you, and next thing you know, you've been there for like 20 minutes, and you're just lost, right? That's happened to a lot of us, or maybe you've been the person who just unloads. But I have to imagine that that same feeling that we get when that happens is kind of like what Jesus' disciples were feeling in this moment, Jesus, or uh, that James, Peter, and John were feeling in this moment, because they're walking with Jesus into, deeper into the garden to pray, they probably think it's going to be some amazing experience. These are the three who had been on the mountain for the transfiguration, where they saw Jesus shining with glory, right? And Moses and Elijah meeting him. They saw this amazing, incredible thing. They probably thought, oh, we're in for a treat. But instead, Jesus turns to them and says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus turns to them and says, guys, I am so troubled, I am so broken, I am so sad that I could die. And I have to imagine they were a little bit shocked. I mean, this is Jesus. This is the guy who they've seen heal crowds full of people. This is the guy who they've seen feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. This is the man who they've seen walk on water, the man who they've worshipped. This is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. This is Jesus Christ, and here he is crumbling like stale animal crackers in front of them, begging them to stay awake and pray with him. They must have been taken aback. And I think sometimes even we might be taken aback by this story, by just how raw Jesus' emotion seems to be if we look at his first prayer in verse 39. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it says he fell on his face to pray. He was on the ground, just totally broken in a posture of total submission. So why was Jesus so troubled? Why was he sorrowful even to death? What was breaking Jesus so much? Well, I think the answer lies in what was to come. We know many of us who have been around the church for a while, what was coming shortly after this. After Jesus prayed in the garden with his disciples, we got a hint of it in verse 46. He says, my betrayer is at hand. He is arrested. And he's accused of blasphemy and treason. And he is falsely convicted and then mercilessly beaten and ultimately left to hang on a cross until he strangles to death. There are some dark things coming ahead for Jesus. But I want to posit to you that if 
the things that I just listed, if that was all Jesus had to endure, he actually would have been fine. He wouldn't have been worried at all. I think if all that Jesus had to endure was beating and crucifixion, he could have handled it no problem. I mean, after all, we we hear stories of great Christian martyrs who go to their death singing, don't we? Reminds me of the story of Polycarp. Who here has heard of Polycarp before? Anyone? A couple of us, maybe? It's not a Pokemon. I know that's what it sounds like, but it's a person. Polycarp was an early teacher. He was a, a Christian teacher in the very early church, so early, as a matter of fact, that he was taught by the Apostle John himself. That's John who wrote the book of John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. That John, the John who was in the garden with Jesus in this story, taught Polycarp. So Polycarp's very early on in the church. And Polycarp, since he was so well-known, was not liked by a lot of the people in the pagan community. See, at the time Polycarp lived in the Roman Empire, it was technically illegal to be a Christian. And so they didn't kill everyone who was a Christian, but if they decided to bring you to a trial and force you to renounce your Christianity, they could, or they would kill you if you didn't. And so since Polycarp was a well-known teacher, eventually, at age 86, he is arrested, and he is put on trial. They put him in the middle of an arena in front of the proconsul, who's like the Roman governing official who presides over these trials. So they put him in front of the proconsul in this arena full of people who are no doubt screaming for his blood. And so the proconsul addresses Polycarp. He says, look, look, I'm paraphrasing, of course, obviously. But he says, look, you're old. You don't need to suffer, right? You, you should die in peace. We should let you live out your years in peace. So we're going to be nice to you. All you have to do is renounce Jesus, praise the emperor, and say, down with the atheists, we'll let you go. No big deal. Atheists, of course, is what the Romans called Christians, because Christians don't believe in the traditional Roman pantheon. They would call Christians atheists. And so Polycarp thinks about it for a second. He looks up at the crowd all around him, and he points to all the people in the arena, and he says, yes, down with the atheists. Now that is sass right there. I mean, seriously, That is a bold move. He's in an arena full of people who already probably want him dead. And instead of renouncing his faith, he says, actually, you guys are the ones who don't believe in the true God. So then, as you might expect, the proconsul gets a little edgier. He starts threatening Polycarp. He says, okay, well, we can have you torn to pieces by wild animals, or we can burn you alive. How does that sound? And Polycarp is steadfast, and he says, bring it on. So eventually they do sentence Polycarp to death. And as they lead him out to the stake to be burned alive, they get ready to tie him up so that he can't jump out of the flames. And Polycarp says, no. The same Lord who will enable me to endure the flames will enable me to stay in the midst of them. He refused to be tied up because he said, God will give me strength to not even try to escape the flames as I'm being burned alive. That is incredible courage. That is mind-blowing courage. But then, when we compare the story of Polycarp to this story we're reading about Jesus, it seems a little odd, right? Polycarp's looking pretty good right now. Why is Jesus so troubled? Why is he so broken if regular humans who are not fully God and fully man, can go to their death joyfully. 
Well, the answer lies hidden within his first prayer. If we look back at it in verse 39, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus, when he mentions a cup, is not talking about a cup of orange juice. The cup is something that is referenced throughout Scripture as the cup of God's wrath. It is God's punishment for sin and evil. Because we serve a God who is loving, but we also serve a God who is perfect and just. He loves justice. He hates evil. He hates sin. And so a just God punishes sin and evil. He will destroy sin and evil. And Jesus went to the cross not to just be a good example. He went to the cross to take on all the weight of our sin, to take on all the punishment for sin and evil, so that if we put our faith in him, we wouldn't have to. Jesus went to the cross to face the wrath of God. And he wasn't being forced. He went willingly. But being fully man, this was no doubt a horrific prospect as the time drew near. To think that he was about to face all the eternal torment of hell condensed into a moment. That's what Jesus was facing. And that is why he is so broken. It's not because of what people are going to do to him. It's because he is about to bear the wrath of God. He is about to bear the punishment for my sin and for your sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So where does Jesus turn? What does he do as he's crumbling beneath the weight of what is about to happen to him? Well, he turns in prayer, right? In verse 39, as we read, it says, He fell down on his face and cried out to God. He prayed to God on his face in humble submission. He said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's begging for suffering. He makes what he wants known to God, but he adds something that a lot of us don't always add, which is not as I will, but as you will. That's a subtle difference between our prayers and Christ's prayer here. And again, in verse 42, he prays, but it's slightly different. It says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You see, there's a slight shift from the first prayer to the second. And then he prays a third time. We don't have any exact words recorded in Matthew. But by the end, by the end of that third prayer, there's been a dramatic change. If you look at verse 45 and 46, it says, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus comes out to his disciples from his third prayer. And he sees Judas coming with an angry mob to arrest him. And he knows what this will lead to. But unlike before, at the beginning when he was broken and troubled, Jesus is ready. He is strong. When he says, let us be going, he's not saying, ooh, let's try to sneak away. He's saying, let's go. Let's face this. I'm ready to face what is coming. And so we learn something valuable about prayer from Jesus. Prayer strengthens us and conforms us to God's will. It changes our hearts to be what God's heart is, and it strengthens us to live out God's will for us. You see, often our prayer 
is just way too small. Our understanding of prayer focuses on really two things. And this is true of myself too. I find myself praying mainly in two ways. And it's either to ask for something from God or to appease God. Oftentimes I find myself praying, God, I really want this, so if you could hook me up, that would be sweet. Or saying, hey God, I'm checking in because I haven't prayed in a while, so I want to make sure you know I'm still a good Christian. You know, I didn't, I didn't stop believing or anything like that. And I think that makes up a very disproportionate amount of our prayers, those two things. But what we learn from Jesus here is prayer has such a powerful use, a use that we overlook so often, which is to conform our will to God's will and to strengthen our hearts to live it out, to change our desires to be more like God's desires and to give us the power to stand for him, to live for him, even when it's painful. Prayer is a gift, and we so often overlook its most powerful use. Jesus shows us what to do. I mean, he could have very justly and very righteously said, you know what, this seems really hard. You guys are the ones who sinned. Why don't you deal with it? I'm going to go hang out in heaven and be worshipped. He could have said that, and it would have been totally fair. But he chose to suffer for us, and he modeled for us how we can endure through hardship, how we can stay true to God's will even when it's painful. And it's by falling on God in prayer. You see, there's a very clear contrast between Jesus and the disciples in this passage. You might have noticed the disciples are doing something very different from Jesus. Now, I want to ask a quick survey question. Who in here is an evening person? Who here likes to stay up late? Wow. We have so many morning people at this church. There are only like two in the 930 service. Okay, so just to check, make sure everyone's actually participating. Who's a morning person? Okay. Yeah, a lot more morning people here than evening people. Interesting. I'm an evening person for sure. The mornings are terrible, but, except for Sunday mornings, am I right? But the disciples seem to display that they are also evening people in the story, or morning people, I'm sorry, morning people in the story, much like many of you. Because if we look at what's going on, it's kind of shocking that the disciples can somehow manage to fall asleep three times, especially considering all the warnings Jesus has given them. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has warned the disciples, I'm going to be murdered and rise again. Even at the Last Supper, hours before this time of prayer, Jesus warned the disciples, I'm going to be murdered and one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to be the one who gives me up. Nothing. And then, right before this, after the Last Supper, but before the prayer time, Jesus said to his disciples, once again, I'm paraphrasing, But he says to his disciples, all of you are going to abandon me. And Peter, you, you're the one one who's saying you'll never abandon me? Yeah, you're going to deny me three times tonight. He gives them all these warnings. That's a stern warning. If I was the disciples, I would be pretty worried right now. And yet somehow they just miss all of this. Somehow they manage to sleep. Even while Jesus begs them to stay awake and pray with him, even while he's crumbling emotionally. They can't even stay awake for him. Even when Jesus warns them, after having fallen asleep once, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Pray that you may not do these horrible things that I've told you you're going to do. They sleep. It's kind of shocking how the disciples can just sleep 
through all of this. It's a striking contrast. And what I want to ask you as you reflect is, who are you more like in this scenario? Who am I more like in this scenario? I don't think I like the answer to that question. When we are faced with suffering and temptation and hardship, is our natural reaction to fall on God in prayer, to beg him for strength? Or is our natural reaction like the disciples to just say, oh no, I've got it, and sleep? The disciples were suffering from a serious case of spiritual pride that I think plagues many of us, that I know plagues me. So rather than falling on God in prayer like Jesus did, they just slept through it. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You'll notice something. I have a quick quiz for you guys, so we're going to get a little bit of audience participation in here. How many times did the disciples fall asleep? Three. Okay, that was good. A couple of you participated. We're staying awake. We're staying awake. Three times they fell asleep, right? Now, for those of you who know some of the story coming after, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. I think that was intentionally put in there. We're shown very clearly that the disciples falling away, that their failure to stand in the faith directly correlates to their failure to pray. It directly correlates to their spiritual pride. When they could have been falling on God in prayer, when they should have been falling on God in prayer, begging for strength, they were sleeping. And so many of us are the exact same way. I guarantee no one in, no one in here would claim to be a perfect Christian, right? We all find ourselves struggling with temptation far more often than we would like. Whether it's anger or lust or pride, or greed, or gluttony, or prejudice, or whatever it is, whatever your pet sin is, we all find ourselves falling into temptation. I know we've all been in that place where we say, God, I'm so sorry, I know I need to change. And yet, shortly after, we fall right back in. And it's not just negative avoiding sinning, too. It's doing things we know we should do, right? Many of us, we know we're called to be a witness for Christ. We know we're called to stand up for the faith, to speak truth, to care for those who are in need. And yet so often, we find ourselves looking out for me. Not doing what we're called to do, not sharing the light of the gospel, not caring for others, but caring for me. And I want to posit to you that a lot of that stems from the fact that we are so weak in our prayer, that we do not fall on God for strength, but instead we trust ourselves to just be good enough. We're spiritually prideful. We gain confidence in ourselves to be good Christians and to make the right decisions, and this leads to pitiful prayer lives. See, living as a faithful Christian in any time, but especially in our time, will not be a cakewalk. It will not be comfortable, and if you think it will be, you are going to be shocked. You are going to have to break with your cultural and political tribe. You are going to have to upset people. You're going to have to do things that are not popular, say things that are not popular, even with people who are professing Christians. Being a Christian will not be easy, especially if you're doing it right. <laughs> Being a faithful follower of Jesus is never the easiest path. 
Just like Jesus did not choose the easiest path, we are not called to choose what is most palatable or what is most pleasurable. We are called to choose the way of God, and that can be hard because we are broken, because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the only way you and I are going to even come close to making it through that is if we fall on God in prayer, if we fall on our face like Jesus did in total submission and beg God for strength. See, prayer is not primarily about getting things. Jesus didn't get what he asked for in his first position. Did you notice that? He asked, if this cup may pass, let it pass. But that wasn't what he ended up getting. At the end of all of his prayer, Jesus still had to go to the cross and take on the weight of our sin. He still had to suffer for the sin of the world. That didn't change. But rather, what prayer accomplished in him was a strengthening, an empowering, an emboldening. And if you want to live as a more powerful Christian, if you want to be a bold Christian, a strong Christian, one who stands for truth in the midst of hardship, fall on your face and pray constantly. When faced with our weakness, when we're faced with our impotence, we have two choices. We can either fall on God in prayer, fall on our face in total submission, or we can be like the disciples and we can trust ourselves and watch ourselves fall into sin. Those are the only two options. And I pray that you and I will choose the former. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the amazing gift that prayer is, that we can come before you and be strengthened by your Spirit, God, that we can commune with you and make our pain known to you, Lord, and that you will strengthen us to carry out your will. We ask you for strength this week and every day going forward to live in the way of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.